The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgard, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome back a former guest who was terrific, Dr. Todd Cooperman. He is a physician, researcher, writer, and president and founder of ConsumerLab.com and PharmacyChecker.com. Dr. Cooperman founded Consumer Lab in 1999, and it has become the leading independent evaluator of dietary supplements, publishing reports for consumers and health professionals at www.consumerlab.com. In 2002, responding to the rapid growth of online pharmacies, Dr. Cooperman founded PharmacyChecker.com, which independently evaluates online pharmacies in the United States and internationally. Welcome, Dr. Cooperman. Oh, thank you, Melinda. Thanks for that nice introduction. Well, I love your work. It's really one of the best resources. In fact, it's probably the only resource that I'm aware of that provides such an extensive review of supplement claims, supplement costs, for what you get, if there's a contaminant, if the label says it contains a certain amount, but it doesn't, if it falls short. And from a dietitian's perspective, you know, we get questions all the time from consumers, and I recommend Consumer Lab without a doubt. Now, one of the supplements you had spoken about or written about in the Huffington Post is one that is highly recommended. It's been recommended for me to take, and that is vitamin D. And the blog post you wrote was titled, Don't Fall for Vitamin D. And it had to do with a recent report published in the American Medical Association that spoke about individuals who took high doses of vitamin D were more likely to fall. What do we need to know about vitamin D? Right. So vitamin D, first of all, we did a survey recently of our readers. 10,000 people responded. And it turns out among them, vitamin D is now the top supplement. It even tops multivitamins. Wow. Um, it has become so popular. It's jumped up like four spots in ranking in terms of what people use over the last year. But the thing about vitamin D is, it, I mean, it is miraculous if you are deficient in it and you start taking it. If you already have a sufficient amount, it won't do much for you. And so what we're seeing happen in, in clinical trials is that some trials, there are a lot of trials that are just being done based on misinformation, where they're either giving it sometimes to people who don't need it, and they're, they're showing no effect, and sometimes they're giving it to people who don't need it, and they're giving so much that it begins to have a negative effect. But when you give it to people who do need it, it does so many great things. So the, the key thing, I think, with vitamin D is really to understand your blood level, which is measured in nanograms per milliliter, NG per ml, and you want a level that's at least 20, and up to like 30 or 40 is, is good. But really being over 25 and getting up to 35 or 45 isn't going to make much of a difference. But there are people out there, and there are even doctors out there, who are getting, want, they want their levels to go higher. You know, more is better. They want to go to 50, 60, 70 nanograms. And that's where you, you're seeing these negative uh, 
uh, effects where basically you reverse the benefits. So like so many other nutrients, as you know, you don't want to overdo it with vitamin D. And sorry to keep talking here, but one of the misconceptions with it is that it can also be measured in nanomolars, and the measurement, the unit of measurement there is different. There's two nanomolar moles per nanogram, and some people are looking at the wrong numbers and uh, that are based on nanomoles, and they're thinking that they need these higher levels. But bottom line, you know, if you're over 20, 30, uh, you're in very good shape with vitamin D. So do most labs use the nanogram measurement? In the U.S., yes. I think in Canada, it's kind of a mix. In other parts of the uh, world, they're, they're using, I think, a mixture. The, the nanograms have become more commonly used. But uh, another real problem is that the laboratories, even though they're u- using the nanograms, when you get your results back, they're showing this range of, like, typically 20 or 30 nanograms uh, per ml up to 100, and they're saying that's the normal range. Uh, I don't know where they're getting this range from because it, it is very abnormal yeah. to have a level that's even, you know, over 50. So people are getting, you know, they get these reports back and they say, oh, I'm, I'm at, you know, 25 and I see, you know, normal ranges, you know, 20 or 30 to 100. I, I need to get it higher. And it's just not true. So people really need to be, uh, you know, aware of that. This is such an important conversation that we're having because I have been to dietetic association meetings and heard from very well-known experts in bone health, for example, or individuals who are known for their vitamin D research. And I can tell you that this is where I think this drive for vitamin D comes from, is that we're all being told, oh, you've got to get it up to at least around 50. They're looking at bone strength. They're looking at the reduction of breast cancer, I think, was one of the other illnesses that was looked at in terms of more is better. So when I read this in your post about, hey, you know, 20 20 nanograms per milliliter is fine, 30 is fine, I thought, wow, that's not what I heard. So how do we make sense of all of this? What I'm telling you is the right thing. Um, If you you read, you know, actually, no, not, you actually read the studies, which which I do, and you dissect them and you look at the details, you will see that what I'm saying is being proven, you know, over and over again. Wow. You read our report on vitamin D, you know, Consumer Lab, we started 17 years ago, just, you know, but focused mostly on where the greatest need was, which was testing products, because there's a question mark in terms of the quality of supplements. So that's, you know, that's our biggest claim to fame, but people have continually asked us questions, well, how much should I take, in in addition to which brand should I use? And so, you know, we realized we really had to to provide them more information. Right. And efficacy and side effects and drug interactions. So all that information is in our reports now. So if you look at our report online in, in great detail, you'll see the evidence about behind what I'm talking about. And I should have let our listeners know that your extensive reports on supplements are excellent. And uh, that's just another reason to subscribe to ConsumerLab.com. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that vitamin D was the top-selling supplement because that was going to be one of my questions to you. What are the top ones? And I would have guessed that it was a probiotic of some sort. Would you say they're in the top ten? Yes. Yeah, probiotics has also shot up there. 
basically, I can tell you that in, this is our most recent survey uh, we found, and it, these are among people who use a lot of supplements. So this is not necessarily your general population, among whom probably multivitamins would be the number one. Uh, but these are people who use multiple supplements. So among that group, number one is vitamin D, followed by fish oil. Oh, right. Fish oil fell from kind of the number one spot last year. It had risen quickly and then has fallen, you know, due to a lack of evidence in terms of certain benefits, particularly in the cardiovascular area, where you're really much better off eating fish, you know, a couple of times a week than taking fish oil. And if you're eating fish already, the fish oil won't do you much good unless you have high triglycerides, where you can take super high amounts of fish oil, and it'll help lower that. But sorry to uh, digress there. Oh, but, no, not at all. So after fish oil, uh, it's CoQ10. Oh, um, yeah. And that, you know, strange thing with CoQ10, you know, it is, it is naturally in our bodies. It's, it's used, you know, in the production of energy and other things in our body. It does decrease when you take a statin, which is why many doctors recommend you take it if you're on a statin. But there's really no evidence that increasing it back up makes much of a difference. Nevertheless, it is so widely used, it's, it's very safe. And many people report that they feel more energetic from using CoQ10, and there's a little bit of evidence to support that. But it's kind of odd that it's become so popular based on really not a lot of evidence uh, in terms of its efficacy. Mm-hmm. After CoQ10 is uh, multivitamins, and then, as you were asking, probiotics, which has come up a lot in, in, the, in the ranking. And after that would be B vitamins, magnesium, curcumin or turmeric, uh, curcumin from turmeric, you know, an anti-inflammatory, which has also become very popular, then vitamin C, calcium, and then melatonin, which has also become much more popular. And finally, uh, protein nutrition powders. That, that, that kind of completes the, the top group of uh, supplements. Very interesting. Well, back when I was a younger dietitian, I certainly spent a lot of time trying to convince athletes that they didn't need to take protein powder and to read labels and see, you see, it's just milk and eggs. You can just eat those things. Because I'm so food-based that, you know, when I think about people taking individual supplements, I think if you're deficient, yes, there's room for them. But really, we want to fix the diet first and then go from there. I think it's interesting that you mentioned about the statin drugs because that's a situation where a person is taking a medication and that results in a deficiency. And then, of course, we would recommend that somebody take whatever is being eroded. Right. I mean, there's no harm to it. It's just not clear what the benefit is. Right. Um, you know, jumping back to the protein powders, it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm very much, you know, food-based as well. You know, even though I live in the world of supplements and testing and, and, and all that information, but there is increasing evidence, not just among athletes, but among older individuals, that when you're doing resistance training, you will get a greater benefit if you take some protein after exercising. Right. Um, because you're, use, you're basically you're breaking it down, and, and, you, and you, by having it available, you're actually getting a greater benefit from having that, that extra protein on board. Right. Okay, let's focus in on a supplement that was not mentioned as one of the top 10, but for people who want to avoid taking antibiotics, urinary tract infections are really common in women, and I've read such horror stories about how some of the antibiotics used in our livestock are leading, of course, to antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and that's one of the problems that women are facing now with recurrent UTIs. 
cranberry products. There are so many on the market. Do any of them work? There is evidence that they that they can help. There is more evidence that drinking cranberry juice will help. And there, there was a very good review uh, of all the studies done uh, in 2012, and that was basically their conclusion. And and that if you're going to to uh, say drink cranberry juice, you want to do it at least two three times a day because the the effect lasts for only about eight hours. And that effect is that it, there are these PACs in cranberry that inhibit E. coli from binding to the, the wall of the urinary tract uh, in the bladder. And you know, I guess after eight hours, you know, they're kind of gone. So you want to you drink it at least, you know, two, three times a day. There are a couple of supplements that have been uh, studied in small studies. The evidence isn't as compelling with, with the diet, with the, you know, the pills, uh, but they, they may help as well. And you want to look for products that, that are listing that they contain, uh, they provide a, on a daily basis at least 72 milligrams of these PACs, preferably the A type of PACs, because the B type doesn't actually have the same effect, uh, you know, blocking uh, the binding of bacteria to the walls. Is it, unfortunately, right now, the science hasn't really caught up in terms of the testing methodologies with the uh, what's been shown with these PACs. So it's actually difficult, very difficult to test for these A-type PACs. But we will be testing cranberry probably as soon as, soon as, that, as, soon as that method gets, gets improved, which should be perhaps, uh, you know, in 2016 or early 17. Great. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined today by Dr. Todd Cooperman. He is a physician, researcher, president, and founder of ConsumerLab.com, which is my favorite go-to source for evaluating and identifying the best quality health and nutritional products through independent testing. One of the things that Consumer Lab looks at are contaminants. Have you found certain contaminants to be an issue in particular supplements that we need to identify? The most common contaminant that we find is uh, lead, uh, you know, the heavy metal which, uh, you know, in children is very dangerous, you know, affects their, their cognitive abilities. Uh, in, in older people, it can also have other effects on blood pressure, and it builds up over time. It actually it competes with calcium in your bones, so you can actually accumulate lead. And, in fact, when you, if you become, you know, you develop osteoporosis, you start leaching that lead back out a little bit. So it's good just to uh, avoid lead uh, as much as possible. And but we do find lead in particularly in herbal supplements, mm. and we also test other botanical products like cocoa powder for lead and cadmium. And we have found both lead and cadmium in cocoa powder. In fact, we found a, a disturbingly high amount of cadmium in many cocoa powders that are on the market. In fact, you can pretty much, it's pretty hard to avoid getting some cadmium. Uh, and, and these are fairly high levels. If you look at some of the uh, limits that have been established, say, in Europe, there really aren't limits in the U.S. for a lot of things. You know, if you drink uh, one cup of cocoa, for example, a day from, like, five grams of cocoa powder, that's about all you're going to want to drink. You know, you don't want to, like, exceed that. You know, some people, you know, they want the flavanols from cocoa, and we have a whole report showing the amount of flavanols from cocoa and dark chocolates. Um, but I wouldn't overdo it on, on cocoa powder due to the contamination. Yeah, where does the cadmium come from, do you know? It's coming from the ground in the areas where, where the cocoa is grown, which is mostly in uh, 
Central America, possibly also South America. Uh, I mean, there's cocoa also from, I think, Africa, um, but most of the cocoa we get here is coming from uh, the Americas. Interesting. So would that be a pollutant, an industrial pollutant, or naturally occurring? It may be naturally occurring. It's hard to say where it's coming from. I mean, I really don't know. Actually, I think a theory is that it may actually... Uh, it may not be naturally occurring. It may be com- coming from pesticides that have been used or other fertilizers that have been used in the mm-hmm. areas. You know, we, sometimes when we find problems, we you know manufacturers will try to spin the story the other way and they'll say, oh, it's it's an it's naturally occurring lead. It's okay, or you know, it's naturally <laughs> occurring cadmium. You know, it's it's lead. <laughs> right. It's, it's cadmium. It doesn't matter. You know how it got there. It's there. Right. Well, you did a report. I'm seeing here you've got a list on your homepage of the most popular reviews. And indeed, you've got get the most cocoa flavonols with the least contamination and what's really in your cocoa and dark chocolate. Did you also evaluate – you didn't also evaluate chocolate bars, did you? Yeah, dark chocolate bars. Dark chocolate bars. Okay. Right. Is there a – are you allowed to say a winner and a loser? I'm the president and founder, so I can say <laughs> you can say whatever you what want. What I wish um, we typically don't don't mention, you know, the, um, names. But uh, I can tell you the one that looked best to me from that study. Uh, one of the better ones was something called endangered species. Oh yes, yes. Um, I think it was perhaps 72 percent cocoa. That was one where you know it had a high amount of flavanols, with you know less contamination. So. I remember that one kind of stood out. Right. Some other ones were okay, and then there were ones that really were not so great. Where I think there were, you know, there was one product I forget the name, and I probably wouldn't say it anyhow on right. the show, which had also maybe seventy percent, eighty percent, you know, cocoa, cacao, and uh, it had it actually had very little in terms of the flavanols, much less than than you would expect. And part of the problem is you can't go by those numbers on the on the bars. Because those numbers include uh, cocoa butter, and cocoa butter has no flavanols, and they don't tell you the mix, the mix, the kind of the ratio of cocoa butter to the part of the cocoa that has the flavanols. So those numbers are, are really not meaningful. Um, you really need to test these things for flavanols, as we've done at Consumer Lab, and we and you'll see a chart in our in our report, you know, showing how you know how much was in each one. In, in, including uh, which ones would give you the most flavanols with the fewest calories. Okay, this is great information and just one more reason for our listeners to go to consumerlab.com. It's, it's really a wealth of data, and get ready to spend an hour or two on the site. That's just a little warning. I want to talk about turmeric because that is another product that I've been hearing a lot about lately. I've recently discovered there are turmeric-loving websites. Uh, There's a golden paste that is recommended where you take the turmeric powder and you mix it with some water, oil, and black pepper to improve absorption. And then I noticed that you've also got a review of some of the products, the turmeric, curcumin, supplements, and spices, and you also show a filthy spice report. What's the bottom line on turmeric? Turmeric really does have anti-inflammatory properties. Um, it's used by many people. It's fairly safe. Um, and the, what you're looking for there are, are, is the amount of curcuminoids. Those are the active compounds. So we went out, as we always do, 
purchase products, you know, as you would at, at a retail, uh, online, et cetera, and tested them for the amount of these curcuminoids, you know, as well as for contaminants. Uh, and we did find a little bit of lead, a little bit of cadmium in some products, but there, there are many good products out there, you know, that, that had what, what, they're, what you would expect from them. And we were looking at, for example, you know, getting about 500 milligrams of curcuminoids as a dose. And the prices are, they're a little bit more expensive than, you know, a multivitamin, but, but really not terrible. Uh, you know, 20, 48 cents a day, things like that. Mm-hmm. I've also seen turmeric recommended as an anti-cancer aid. Yeah, um, you know, I, I forget where it stands in terms of anti-cancer. I'm, I'm actually in front of our report right now. I'm just trying to see. I mean, the key use is uh, anti-inflammatory. Uh, anti-inflammatory. Well, different things that relate to inflammation. So also ulcerative sort of colitis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, right. osteoarthritis, um, all the itises. Right. Um, in terms of cancer, I don't. I'm not aware of of much uh, solid evidence on the cancer side. Okay. Yeah, actually, I'm just looking now. Well, we can go to your wonderful reports, and we can pull these things up, and that's the beauty of the website. And I should just let our listeners know that without a membership, you can access a lot of good information. But if you want the full reports, you really want the meaty data, that requires a subscription. Yeah, right. That's true. Exactly. Uh, and just you know, I'm just looking at it right now on the cancer because I, I just didn't recall. But there, there was a study showing that uh, 30 days of four, taking four grams of curcumin did reduce the number of uh, kind of pre-malignant cells uh, becoming, which could become colon cancer, and reduce them by about 39 percent. So there is some evidence, as you're suggesting. Mm-hmm. for that, but um, yeah, more information in the report. Okay, we'll do that. I prefer to eat the spice. I think it's really flavorful, and there are some wonderful ethnic dishes that include that, and I always struggle with this, you know, do I take the supplement, you get a more concentrated source versus you might with the food, but the supplement requires swallowing a pill, which I'm not always, you know, that crazy about doing. But I think it's it's really interesting to see some of the differences among products. So if you are going to purchase something, you want to get the most for your money, and you want to get the purest, cleanest supplement. So kudos to you for doing this work. Let's talk about another supplement, not listed in the top 10, but one that I hear a lot from aging baby boomers, and that has to do with glucosamine protecting joints. I have a dear friend who's a wonderful athlete who says that he takes glucosamine. He has found that it has, that it has helped joint pain. What are your thoughts on glucosamine? Yeah, I, you know, when we started doing this, glucosamine chondroitin um, was probably in the top 10. Um, it's fallen a bit at, out of that group. The, the There is evidence for glucosamine helping with osteoarthritis, not rheumatoid arthritis. So, you know, the the worn down, you know, menisci in your in your knees, that's osteoarthritis, the wear and tear. So there is there is evidence for glucosamine. Um, the evidence for chondroitin alone is not as great at this point. Uh, there are many products that have a combination of the two, um, glucosamine and chondroitin. We've tested many many of these products. Years ago, there was a real problem uh, with chondroitin in terms of quality because it's a much more expensive ingredient. And we were finding really 
virtually no chondroitin in some products. Mm-hmm. Um, the glucosamine is less expensive. It's made from uh, shellfish. Be aware if you have a shellfish allergy uh, of that fact. Um, the chondroitin is actually made from a cartilage um, from like uh, from cows, like trachea cartilage. Hmm. Um, but the, the the quality has, gen- has generally improved. You know, we test supplements for pets as well, and and we saw that it, it's taken longer for the quality to improve on the pet side, um, mm-hmm. except for certain brands. Yeah, pets in general, they they kind of those supplements kind of fly under the FDA radar. Right. Um, you know, and and you find all kinds of things with with the pet supplements, and you know, supplements for people, they're in they're on the FDA radar, but the the regulations are just not that strict. So, with regard to glucosamine, just to summarize, do we want a product that has both the glucosamine and the chondroitin, or is one more beneficial than the other, or do we need to take them together? Um, you know, the general rule of thumb with supplements is really stick with a single ingredient first. Okay. See if it works. I would start with glucosamine first. If that's not working, you might try a combination to see if that works any better. But that's, you know, in, in general, just that's what I recommend. And really, it, it's good to know because you, you, one of the biggest problems with supplements is you often see these proprietary blends. Right. Where, and and they don't really tell you what's in it. You know, they'll tell you maybe what's in it, but they won't tell you how much of, of each thing is in there. And so I've seen, you know, like, you know, proprietary uh, glucosamine chondroitin blend, you know, 1,000 milligrams, but you really don't know what you're getting from those kinds of things. Right. So, so go with the individual ingredients, look for the amount that you want, you know, and try that first. Right, right. We just have a minute left. I knew our time would fly. There's <laughs> such a wealth of data on this website, and there's so many questions about these different supplements. I'm going to leave that minute up to you if you want to add anything that perhaps I didn't address. Um, I'm sure I'll regret it later, but I can't think of anything right now. Okay, then let me fire another question, and that has to do with safety. Is the FDA testing these before going to market for safety? No. Okay. It is definitely not. Um, it's really in a kind of a firefighter mode, the FDA. You know, there need to be some dead bodies before they're really going to jump in with uh, testing supplements, or maybe due to pressure from the pharmaceutical industry, they'll jump in if if, if it seems that, that there are drugs being added, you know, like herbal Viagras, where they're actually putting Viagra, uh, you know, into a supplement. Wow. Um, so that their big focus in terms of testing is really looking for drugs that are in supplements, not looking for actually the amount of the, the uh, herbal or vitamin or mineral ingredients that are in those supplements. They do do some some auditing of manufacturing facilities now, Mm. Um, but only a small percentage are checked. And even among those, the last time it was reported maybe a year or so ago, I think you know more than the majority had some type of failure, typically dealing with the fact that they weren't doing adequate testing. If someone has a product that they think they've been harmed by, will FDA accept a report on that? Yeah, this, uh, this is the MedWatch program okay. where you can report that. We You can actually report it on our site as well. I'd recommend both. Because at least on our site, we, you know, we may look into it and, and publish it on the FDA site. It may or may not, you know, be thoroughly looked into. I'm sure they read these, but I don't know how much action they're taking. Well, Dr. Cooperman, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. Again, that website is consumerlab.com. 
I want to thank you for sharing all of this information, for doing this important work. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Dr. Cooperman. And I, I want to recommend this website. I'll provide it for our listeners, consumerlab.com. Thanks. Thanks, Melinda.